All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Dirty Giants podcast. Before we start, I want to thank one of our sponsors, Scout to Hunt, the completely free offline GPS mapping app. Also, I just want to let you guys know that if you have any suggestions or uh, input on how we could make the podcast better, reach out on Instagram and send me a message. It's dirty underscore giants. Uh, I'd love to hear what you guys think that we could do to make the podcast better. Anyways, let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Dirty Giants podcast. This week we have uh, Tyler Mott. Um, Instagram is A3Mott. Um, he's helped kill a lot of big bucks and a lot of really big bulls. He killed a big bull himself this year, and he's killed a lot of really good bucks too on the over-the-counter archery there in Arizona. So we're gonna we're gonna learn some stuff from him, and we're kind of we're gonna start kind of with how he got into guiding and how he got into hunting. So do you want to just give yourself a little introduction, Tyler, and kind of start from there? Yeah, man, I'm, I'm really thankful you gave me the call and gave me a chance to get on here. Um, it's it's, it's kind of nice because, you know, in the off-season, you go back to your normal jobs and just kind of lets you get back into your roots and start talking about the stuff that you like doing for the other half of the year, even though that's <laughs> not possible. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, no, so I started, uh, I started guiding back in 2000 and I want to say 15 or 16, um, I got set up initially with A3 Trophy Hunts, and that's, you know, that the guys over there have been my home. Uh, you know, some of the best guys I know, a lot of the guys are from Flagstaff. Um, one of my really good friends throughout high school, uh, Hunter Weems, who guided for A3 right after they started, um, you know, kind of gave me the call and was like, hey, man, you know, this is a great opportunity because we always ran into each other the same places, you know, in the middle of nowhere over and over again, and we kind of shared the same hobbies. Uh, unfortunately, at the time, I was on a track to go to East Texas for school, and I told him, I'm like, you know, man, the timing's just bad. And I spent about two years in Texas, you know, hunting over there, going to school, realizing that, you know, private land wasn't my thing. The woods were different. There's no big mule deer where I was. There's absolutely no elk. I hated the humidity. Everything over there tried to bite you or sting you, and I'm like, you know what, I think it's time to go back home and switch things up, and I came back, and... I came back right before the season started, and, uh, you know, Chad Rowe and Jay and a lot of these guys over there gave me an opportunity that I only dreamed of when I was in high school, and I picked it up from there, and it's just been one of those things that, you know, I I look forward to it. The, the day the last hunt ends in December or January, you know, everyone starts their off season, and it's you get about, you know, three, four days of sleeping in, and then you're like, crap. I need to go back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny how that happens. You just need one one or two days of rest, and then all of a sudden you miss it again and we're ready to go back. Exactly. And unfortunately, my two favorite hobbies are sleeping in and hunting, and those absolutely conflict with each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So I, I met um, Hunter Weems out there on the strip this year. He's a, he's a really nice guy, and he's a really good hunter. Absolutely. There's a, it's, it's, there's, you know, he's my age and we're still, you know, I'm still learning from stuff from him every single time we're out. And it's kind of funny with different styles and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So we were out on the strip. We were kind of, 
hunting in the same area. We saw him. We're like, oh shoot, there, we're we're up against a killer. But he's he's nothing but nice and helpful, and yeah, he's he's a good guy. So he's a great guy to have on your team, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So let's kind of go in. Let's start with your um. So you killed a non-typical buck. Um, was it two or three years ago? Just a really uh, cool looking deer. Yeah, it was it was in 2018. Is uh, yeah, that was, it was 2018. So the So is that the first the first year you knew about that buck? Is 2018 or had you seen it no. like previous previous years? We we'd seen it before. You know, I I started in unit nine kind of right out the gate because uh, one of the guys who just basically demolishes unit nine and if. Anyone knows Unit 9, knows about big bulls, you've heard of David Luzon. And he brought me and Hunter in and kind of groomed us and taught us what we needed to know just so we could be, you know, as a team better up there. And uh, David Luzon now retired from A3, and so Hunter's kind of, you know, led the charge up there. And, you know, I'm right there next to him. We're getting as much done as we can. And uh, we run tons of cameras. You know, every year, and that's kind of why we're blowing through trucks like we are, is just trying to check them every other week. And we found, I think Hunter actually found that buck, and I'm pretty sure David knew about it. And uh, the problem is, is it's just, they, it's the deer, how, how they're moving in there, they're not dependable. And the, the frustrating part was, is, you know, you'd get this little teaser pick of a buck you'd hit, you know, in velvet, or you'd hit when he's growing, and you get so excited, and you have to tell yourself initially, you know, everything's going to change. This buck is not going to be anywhere close to where, he, you know, he is now. And uh, so it's just one of those where you, you can't get overly excited about, you know, sometimes these big deer you see in these places because you'll see him once and you'll never see him again. And that was kind of how it started. And we, you know, we'd see him every year. We'd overlook it because, of course, we're up there for elk. Right. And it came, it came down to... I was actually, I got a coos deer buck, you know, I killed a couple great over-the-counter bucks in years prior, and one of my goals that I set for myself was, you know, not coos deer down, you know, southern state, but some of these coos deer that are up here in the pines, closer to the hometown that I live in, and uh, it kicked my butt for nine days, you know, tree stands, waters, you know, 90-something degrees, and I was just like, you know, defeated, and then, you know, the antelope hunt started, so I wasn't able to hunt for myself anymore. Um, Kind of went through the whole season and uh, really hadn't seen that buck at all through all of our hunts and everything. And it, this was a uh, big drought year that we had up here in Arizona. And it was honestly for, for that hunt, it was a blessing. And I didn't realize it at the time because, you know, we're all struggling all across the board with, you know, these dry conditions, these bulls that are just, you know, shrunken up top because they're shriveled and didn't get the nutrients that they needed. But when it came down to those hunts being over and uh, the deer hunt started, you know, all the deer come out of the woodwork once those elk quit pushing them around and that buck showed up again and it was kind of like, whoa, like this hasn't happened before. Usually he's gone. And, you know, we waited up until the season and there was three bucks that me and Hunter knew we wanted to chase right off the bat. Um, one of those other bucks, he was a giant 190-inch non-typical, perfect four-point, like the ideal, like pretty boy buck you could think of. 
and uh-huh. uh, he ended up getting shot in the knee, and we're not sure if he went back to, you know, wherever he came from initially, or he ended up dying just because it was so dry. Um, and so we kind of turned our sights towards this other buck, and he kept showing up in these same places and started getting more and more dependable due to the drought. You know, there's no water like there should have been in years before and it was really concentrated and it honestly led to the demise of a lot of these deer which put a hurt on the unit nine deer population as far as the over-the-counter hunt because it turned into a slaughter like everyone was killing great great deer but they stood no chance oh, okay just because they had to go water and there's only so many places they could do that exactly and, and everything got concentrated and so <clears throat> when a let me back up just a little bit. So in Arizona, the over-the-counter hunt starts in August, and you have about, I want to say, uh, two weeks, maybe maybe three, maybe a week and a half, I'm not sure, um, and then it stops. And then all the draw tags start, like the stuff you have for, you know, antelope, elk, deer, and everything. And then it starts back up in uh, then the middle of December and then goes into January, and it kind of works um, like a grid system, like you have a bunch of different dates and there's certain units that are open in different dates and certain ones that close. And a nine was open at the end of December and into January. And uh, so it kind of gives you a chance to hunt bucks in velvet, hunt bucks in hardhorn, which is, you know, if, depending on your schedule, if you have time, whatever. And the great thing about it for people like us is uh, it seems like Game and Fish doesn't want to give us deer tags. And so the over-the-counter hunt is like our staple every year that we're like, at least we have one tag we can count on that we personally can go hunt when we have time. And so in, in December, we started hunting that buck. Um, we knew the buck was in a couple of different places. And, you know, we still were, I'm pretty sure me and Hunter were still finishing up school at the time. And so we were kind of, we were rotating back and forth between who could be up here, who could be here. And for a while, the buck was, you know, We'd hear, oh, yeah, this guy saw him at a junction in the road, and we're like, oh, crap. You know, so we got excited, go up there, nothing. You know, we spent days up there. I think we were up there a total between me and him nine, it was either nine or 11 days before he finally, like, started hitting to the point during the daylight where it got clockwork, and we're like, perfect, this is going to work. And as soon as we thought we had it dialed in, I don't know if <clears throat> someone's bumped him, scared him, you know, we left and found other hot does and it changed again. So we were sitting tanks, you know, not having any luck. And then we kind of got to a point where we were like scratching our heads because this made no sense to us. We thought, you know, we thought this was like, we had it in the bag. Yeah. Um, And we started, you know, kind of picking our brains and realizing, well, maybe there's a possibility he went back to where he was on the summer range which, you know, isn't that far. And we're like, all right, let's, you know, try these different waters. We went and hung a camera and boom, like clockwork, he had been there the whole time. And no 10, way. 15, yeah, like he had been. And we're like, all right. 10, 15 so in the day or in the, in, at night? 10, 15 in the morning was his, his window was from about 9.30 to 10.30 and he was habitual. The problem was wow. he just bounced from different ones and we could never get the right tank at the right time or it was just something always happened. Yeah. And so, unfortunately for me, is uh, I uh, I think I had work that next day, and Hunter checked the camera, and he's all, dude, the buck's back. I'm like, perfect, get him. 
and it was bittersweet because I'm like, you know, Hunter deserves it. Hunter spent so much time up there, more time than I could possibly. You know, I, I still have to pay bills, and unfortunately I can't be up there like he can. And uh, I was excited for him, and that next day the buck didn't come in, and we had been alternating. And so the next day I went up there, and I told myself I'm going to get up there early. I made breakfast. I made everything. I'm ready. Well, of course, I fell asleep with my phone not on the charger and was late. So I'm hauling, I'm hauling ass to get it up there as fast as I can, and it took me about an hour and a half from my house. Uh-huh. I get in there late, you know, hide the truck, everything's perfect, and I'm sitting there in this ground blind that's built for a hobbit. So I have to, <laughs> in order for me to draw and shoot, in a little backstory, I'm 6'6", six, six, and I have a 34-inch draw leg, and the ground <laughs> blind I have is meant for a child. You always, you always hear stories about someone's limbs, like, you know, hitting the top of a ground blind or bouncing off something. And so I was already paranoid. And, uh, you know, as soon as you get to that time where you know this buck's supposed to be there and it's like every sound, everything you hear starts to get, like, amplified, you know, you're stressing yourself out. And I remember I was going through battery packs like crazy on a, my portable charger because I was playing games and, you know, watching movies on my phone just trying to pass the time and not pull my hair out. <laughs> and uh, I remember, like, looking across, and everything kind of blew up, and all these does come running out, and I'm like, perfect, this is it. I'm like, this is my chance. And I see this buck kind of going through the trees, and I'm like, oh, heck yeah, that's him. And out walks the ugliest two-point with mange that I've ever seen, and it was like one of those letdowns where I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, because it's the same seven does with two fawns that I know this buck was with. Yeah. And I'm like, crap. So I'm sitting there watching them. You know, they kind of come into the drinker. He's pushing them around. And I'm looking at these does, and I'm watching them out of the left side of my blind. You know, I'm just, just kind of hanging out. And I look back over to the water, and that buck came out of nowhere, and he's just standing there. And he had to walk probably 100 yards out of the trees for me to see him. And I was so focused on those does that that buck had been standing there at like 53 yards for probably two, three minutes, and I had no idea. No way. And, and so I remember picking up my bow, getting up out of the chair and going to draw, and he jumps the drinker fence and runs that buck off up the hill. And I'm kind of sitting on this berm, and so they run back to my left. And at that point, you know, it seems like it's been five minutes and it's probably been six seconds, and that is absolutely where I screwed myself, and I pulled the biggest rookie move you possibly could have done. And I tried to stick my head out the ground blind window to see if I could see the buck. And, of course, all the does instantly stared at me and started snorting. And I'm like, I just yeah. ruined all of this. <laughs> and so all of the does take off. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. And the buck and the, the smaller buck never come back off the hill. So I'm, like, sitting there. And, again, same thing. You think it's been 5, 10 minutes, and it's probably been 15 seconds. And again, I do another rookie move, and I unzip my ground line. <clears throat> I get halfway out, and I hear all the shale on this hill to my left just sliding, like skipping all over the place. And that two-point comes running down the hill. And so I just stop and sit on my knees, and I'm, I have this ground line kind of anchored to this tree, so it's a little V just right off the ground line. And that buck runs through, and then out comes that big knot typical and he runs and he makes it right to the corner of the drinker fence and I just drew and grunted at him and he stops and I remember no the drinker the drinker was 50 yards 
the fence was 60, and he's standing just right, right where his heart should be is right where the top part of that drinker fence is. And I'm like, all right, he's right behind it. You know, this arrow is going to go right over the top of it. And without even thinking, my finger hits the trigger. And I'm like, you idiot. <laughs> and I see, the, I see the arrow go flying. And it was one of those things where in my head I was like, you completely butched this entire thing. And I see that arrow go right up over the top. And right where that top bar of the drinker fence is, my arrow disappears. And I see the buck jump and take off running. And I'm looking around, and I'm trying to figure out what in the heck I just did. Like, I waited all this time. I got, you know, guys who have helped us look for this deer and everything. We finally get a chance, and I completely wet the bed. Like, I've never been so disappointed in my entire life. And the buck takes off, and so I'm like, crap. So I run up there, and I can hear my arrow kind of skip a couple times. Uh -huh. And I'm looking, and I'm looking. And, and about the time I go to pull out my phone and call Hunter and explain to him the absolute circus that I just put myself through and ruined it, I look down, and there's hair and there's blood, and it was like that sigh of relief, like, okay, thank God I hit him, but I have absolutely no idea where. Right. So I call him, and I'm telling him, and he's like, have you looked for him? Have you looked for him? I'm like, no, I called you so you could tell me not to go look for him because I shot him 30 seconds ago. I'm sitting there <laughs> panicking, and I I remember just rambling, talking and talking as fast as I could. And uh, I'm sitting there, sitting there, and I hear this thing thrashing. And so I end up getting off the phone, and there's this old barbed wire fence kind of up into the trees. And I remember following his tracks, and I can hear this thing thrashing, and I'm like, he's stuck in the fence. No. Like, okay, even if I, made a, if I made a bad shot, you know, maybe this is God giving me a chance saying, hey, I got this thing by the leg. Come on, finish this. <laughs> yeah. And I walk up. I walk up over this little berm and I can just like, my head's about level with the ground and I can see him laying there with his back towards me and he's completely twisted upside down like on his horns in this cedar tree. Like he fell, rolled and got all wrapped up. And I take one more step and of course I step on this pine cone and I can see his eyes roll over and look at me and I have no range finder, no nothing. Like I panic. Do you have so an arrow Oh no, I was... 100% unprepared for him to be 22 yards in front of me. And so I knocked an arrow as fast as I could. When I go to do it, I accidentally double bumped the actual knock so the knock comes out of the actual arrow. So I'm fumbling trying to get that back in. So I shoot, and I'm like, the only shot I have is to hit him right in the shoulder blades, you know, hopefully spine him so I can run up there and get another arrow. And I remember, sh like, taking the time to be like, all right, we're not punching the trigger this time. Like, you've got this. And I remember it, it was like I hit a two-by-four as hard as I could with that arrow, and his legs went straight, and then instantly I knew, like, you, you made up for your bad shot the first time. Like, he's not going anywhere. And it was one of those where, you know, you kind of see him relax. I remember throwing my bow to the ground, throwing my hat up in the tree, and I just sat there. I probably broke everything on that bow at the time because I was – I was just like, this is, I cannot believe this just happened. <laughs> so I walk up there, and of course, you know, you have your, like, sigh of relief, and you're picking this thing up, and I'm like, I, all right, I got to call everyone. You know, I FaceTime my brother, who was actually in Iraq at the time on his second deployment. He, oh, no way. he picked up, and uh, that was kind of one of those cool things, because I never really get to talk to him, and he used, you know, when we were little kids, we chased up all over the place, and 
that was one of those special moments. And Hunter was, you know, out hunting another deer at the time. And uh, so, you know, I had people come up there and everything and, you know, take pictures and do all this stuff. And it was, you know, one of those days that I can't tell you how or what I did yesterday, but I can tell you every chapter, second, minute from that day, you know, every detail, every bumpy rock in the road. And uh, it, it was just one of those where it was it was nice because we had hunted a deer for so long and we got lucky and conditions weren't ideal. And it was just, you know, I finally got a chance to <clears throat> spend some time hunting for myself. And I, you know, you realize why you do it because guiding, you're living vicariously through everyone else, you know, helping yeah. them achieve their dreams. And that was one of those moments that I know I'll, I'll never forget. <laughs> so cool. Man. And the funniest part about this whole thing is I couldn't find my arrow. And one of the other guides for us, his name's Garrett Smith. I was, he asked me if I found it and I'm all known. He's like, oh, well, it's right there. Well, we went and looked at it and we're looking at the blood and I'm looking where the buck's standing. And I'm like, dude, this is way farther than I was looking before. So I stood where the buck was and I ranged and it was like 78 yards. And I'm looking at the ground blind, and I'm like, this tracks are right here. There's blood everywhere. And I'm like, I 100% punched that trigger with my 60-yard pin right on him and sent it the other, you know, 18 yards that it needed to go to hit him absolutely perfect in the lungs. And it was one of those where I was like, I got so lucky as far as doing every rookie move I possibly could this entire hunt. <laughs> Well, it worked out. You got him. That's such a cool deer, too. Like, he just has so much character. And, and it, it's weird because he's – when I killed that deer, I was like, you know, we thought he was 190. And then when I saw him at the tank, I was like, I just killed – you know, I broke 200, absolutely. And then we start looking at him, and you realize his G2s are just not there. And he's he's a 150-inch frame with, like, 26 inches of trash and extras. So we just had, you know, it was, it was deceiving because you couldn't figure it out. You know, great body, big old ears. And, uh, he, he, you know, he, he didn't hit 200. He didn't hit 190. But it was one of those things where at that point I did not care. You know, this this is such a cool buck. And, and I doubt I'll ever get a chance to, you know, take another buck like that in my life. I hope I do. You know, I got 10 points for this 13B archery tag that I'm sitting on so patiently, hoping to get lucky like everybody else. But, that day seems really far off. Yeah. Well, your buck, too, like, it, it, it almost has, like, kickers that go straight back. Like, it just has so much character. It's such a cool deer. Like you said, like, yeah. at that point, score doesn't really <laughs> do it justice. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he, what we looked at is he, the pictures we had of him were mostly in velvet. Um, the daytime pictures that we had of him, hardhorn. We're always just, you know, we had it set the wrong way, so the sun was always hitting that camera, and you could tell it was him, but you couldn't make out anything. And he actually broke off another like six-inch flyer on his left side, um, and you know, everyone's like, "Oh, you got to get that thing rebuilt." I'm like, "Well, one, I don't know what it looks like to have it rebuilt, but <laughs> I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this is, you know, this is the buck's potential. This is what he is, and this is what I harvested him for. And you know, I, I was beyond happy with what I had." Yeah, dang. So, you you've killed quite a few good bucks on that on that over the counter hunt. What do you feel like? Because you're killing like bucks that like most people on that 
on those hunts are are not going to kill a deer, or if they do, it's 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 not that great of a buck. What do you feel like you're doing different that other people aren't? To, like, what makes you successful? Um, I think a lot of what it is is I, you know, during the summer, you know, you're you're still living through your passion, and you know, archery hunting in you know my town of Flagstaff is really big, and you know, we're lucky where the place we live had had a lot of property, so we had a lot of targets set up, and I got to shoot, you know, probably two hours a day, and just you know, be consistent where like I was confident with my equipment, so I knew when the you know, the time came, if there was ever a, a mess up, it was on me. And I had to take that into account to be able to, you know, like focus and breathe and, you know, calm myself down. I used to get horrible pin blur where it looked like a rainbow inside my housing. And it took me a long time to get out of that. But I think once you lose that, like, excitement and, you know, the goosebumps and the adrenaline rush, you know, you're doing it for the wrong reason. That passion has to be there to justify what you're doing and to, you know, push yourself. Um, but the blessing in disguise that I have is, you know, guiding for all these people and spending so much time out in the woods for antelope and elk, you get to run into like, you know, all these different animals. So I've, there's been tons of time where I've been looking for antelope, you know, and, you know, thicker country and found great deer, found great elk. And, you know, it, it, it's a trade-off vice versa with different species. And I think it's, it all comes down to just having your boots on the ground and kind of being willing to you know, take the trial by error and a lot more misses and defeats than there is success. But at the end of the day, that's what makes it so worth it, especially with archery hunting, you know? Yeah, no, those are some good, some good points. But so do you have like a, a routine you do when you're shooting your bow and practicing or are you kind of just mixing it up and shooting different yardages? Um, you know, when I, so when I started out, I didn't get into archery hunting very much until I was in Texas and, uh, the little podunk archery shop that there was in the town I lived in, um, it was very small. It didn't really have the resources like a lot of these larger scale bow shops do. Like here in Flagstaff, the guys at Bull Basin Archery are absolutely phenomenal. You know, they're willing to help you out as much as you can. And the, the bow I got when I was in Texas was an old Hoyt. I think it was, you know, two years old. And it was the longest draw bow I could get from this bow shop. And it was 31 inches, 31 and a half inches. And I have a, you know, 34 inch draw. <laughs> so I could never, I, I could never get comfortable with this bow. Like it just seemed like I was always bunched up. And I think it was in 2019, Bowtech came out with the BT Mag. And it went to 34 inches. And I was like, this is it. This is perfect. And it was right when that Garmin site came out. And I'm like, you know what? I was like, I, you know, it's, it's a lot of money for a, you know, a bow site, but I think it's worth it. And ended up getting set up. Harky and Mav at the bow shop got me this bow. They spent the time with me where it was like, when I drew that bow, I was in a, like a comfortable position to be holding it, to be shooting. And that's the point when I started focusing on, you know, you know, fingers, release, you know, just your constant being at your same anchor point every single time. And you get that, like, rhythm of being comfortable. And that's when I realized I started being able to shoot so much better. And uh, it took – I probably shot that bow through 500 times because there's a counter on that Garmin site before I was like, you know, this is it. I blew through a string, you know, shot, <laughs> shot the wheels off of it. And uh, finally got to the point where I was like, 
I'm comfortable. So I'd go to the range once I got everything dialed in, and I was I would always start, you know, kind of at 50 yards, just a little bit farther. But then I jumped straight to like 110, you know, 120 with this Garmin sight that I have. And uh, before my you know like shoulders and arms and everything would fatigue out, I would focus on cranking out these shots at a longer distance while I was you know fresh and ready. And then I kind of scoop my way into 30 and then focus on actual, like, really minute placement of where those arrows were going. Okay. And that's one, of the, that's one of the best training tips that, you know, they taught me is because if you start at 30 and work your way out, you get to 110 and you're fatigued out and you can't hold through that shake very well. And that's when your trigger panic kind of starts. Oh, that makes sense. That's some good advice right there, yeah. Because once you... Yeah, but I, yeah. yeah. So how do you like that Garmin side? Because I thought that it only ranged out to 100 yards or something like that, but you can shoot past that. Yeah, I, I don't know what the actual top range is for that. What, what I, again, I'm, I'm lucky because I'm shooting a – I have it set at 33 and a half. I'm shooting really stiff arrows, and uh, that bow's cranking. I think I'm shooting those arrows at 327 something right in there and I'm getting the distance where you have some people who get that Garmin sight and you know the farthest they can go is 90 and uh, I think mine tops out at like 124 is about as far as it lets me go before that pins you know exceeds the housing limit yeah so you, it's just different for everyone so did you like it using it this year like you didn't have any problems with it or anything Absolutely not. I uh, the so I killed that non-typical <laughs> with my last bow and just a regular fixed uh, uh, five-pin housing, and then I got this one right before uh, I killed that big archery bear with another guide up here, um, and that was the that was how I broke that bow in. And then I went and uh, I initially got it because I drew a unit nine elk tag, which is the main unit that I guide every year for elk during the early hunts, and I got lucky with seven points and you know pulled off a hat trick and drew that tag and you know that, no, that got me excited for the whole year and I killed, yeah, uh, I killed that bull at 97 no way 97 yeah that was a, that mm. was where that you know I the conditions weren't ideal but I everything lined up perfect for that I'm again absolutely thankful for whoever else was there because they really helped me that was a, another dream come true that 2019, you know, I'll definitely hold on to for a long time. Yeah, I'm looking at your picture of your bull now. So did you, is that kind of the bull you were after? I mean, it looks, it looks giant to me. No, I was actually, uh, there's, I had two bulls uh, from, you know, velvet season that I knew were hands down the two bulls that I would be going into this hunt chasing. And, uh, Luckily, they stuck around. Uh, I had that, my first target bull, he was like a clean six-point, giant, giant swords, giant fists. His beams actually hooked up in the back, and we thought he was right around 390. As a six-point, he could have been pushing 400, which is, you know, it was amazing up in unit nine. And uh, he actually um, got wounded on the second day of the hunt. The first day of the hunt, me and David Luzon had him at 147, but I just could not. He wouldn't come any closer, and it, you know, the, the rut was really slow in the beginning of that hunt. He just wouldn't respond, and we figured out where he was and kind of moved in there. 
he didn't take the shot, but we knew the next morning he would be in the general area. I uh, went in there and ended up finding out that he had been wounded, and we helped the guy track him for almost seven miles because I was like, I want to know oh, if this bull is dead or not because if he's not dead, I'm still chasing him. Um, you know, four or five days went by, he never hit the water. We chased a couple other bulls, and then on it was day 11 of this 14-day hunt, I had probably the best team of elk hunters you could ever ask for. I had Hunter Weems on the glass. I had David Luzon, who's, you know, pioneered Unit 9. Anyone who knows Unit 9 has heard of David Luzon. And then I had James Vine, who's an absolute savage up on the Kayabab. He's still some of the biggest deer going up there. They came down, and we glassed up this giant, probably 390s, I think it was a 6 by 7 and uh, called him in, real wide open country, ended up getting busted by this cow at 57 yards which I will haunt me for the rest of my life because it was 100% my fault I got cocky he was buried in a tree raking all upset and I'm like you know what I got this and I didn't <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that that bull actually took off ran all of his cows through this flat and we're looking at him you know kind of all disappointed at myself and this the bull I ended up killing comes out of nowhere, runs up, runs all his cows together, chases that bull off, and pushes all these cows back into this wide open flat with probably 10 trees. And we spent the next, I think, five hours coming in at different angles just trying to get to the point of where I could break, you know, 100 yards and piss him off enough and get him to leave his cows. And, uh, is probably, you know, out in these antelope flats, I want to say like 20, 30 mile an hour winds, and you had me, David Luzon, and James Vine behind this cedar tree that was probably three feet tall, and we got that bull to come into 100 yards, and uh, he realized that there was, you know, there was no cow there making this sound, so he went to turn and walk, and David's like, hey, you need to shoot him, and I'm like, how far? He's like 100, and I'm like, dude, it's too, it's too windy. I was like, or it was 90, it was, I think it was right at 90. And I was like, dude, this is too far. I was like, I cannot do that in this wind. And I'm talking to him. I'm like, what do I do? And he's just walking. And David's all run at him. As soon as you get close enough and stop and I see you draw a cow call at him, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> and I remember knocking an arrow and running as fast as I could straight behind this bull. And he's bugling, pissed off, not paying any attention to me. And no. I hit the one cedar tree that's in this flat. And I went behind it and drew and stepped out. David Cow called, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, he'll turn broadside. And all that dang thing did was look over his left shoulder right at me, and I'm like, okay, 97 yards, it's howling wind, and it's got to be just to the left of his ass cheek and just to the right of his shoulder if you can, you know, catch that last rib. And there was some stuff in my way. I sent that arrow, and, of course, you hear that tink-tink of stuff going everywhere, and I'm like, I just butched this whole thing again. <laughs> Bull runs off. All the 11 cows take off, and uh, I'm just sitting there with my bow on the ground like, these guys are going to kill me. Like, we have no water. We've been out here for six hours. You know, James has almost got stung or bit twice by rattlesnakes. Like, these guys are done with me. They will not hunt with me anymore. And Hunter gets on the radio, and he's like, I have 11 cows, and I have no bull. And, you know, you look at a lot of these older bulls, they'll, you know, run out a back door and kind of watch, and they'll come back and get their cows later. And uh, we spent about, I want to say, two minutes looking for blood. And at this point, I was just ready to just call the whole hunt, cut my bowstring, and 
counted as a loss to go home. And uh, James goes, dude, I got blood. And I look down, and sure enough, there's like a nickel-sized speck of blood on this rock. No. And we walk two, two, we walk two feet and look around the only little cedar bush in this entire flat, and that bull is laying there with my pink fletching sticking out of the side of him, and I was – I was speechless. I just remember jumping up and down all over these guys. And I'm 6'6", six, six, and I'm pretty sure I was taking them to the ground. And we walked yeah. up there, and this bull, yeah, this bull was giant. He went 373 with, like, 62 inches of mass, just heavy all the way up, you know, a couple extra, like, little flyers on top. And, uh, again, it's the reason that hunt was so great besides grinding it for 11 days was, you know, the main guys that – I've been hunting with that have taught me so much. It was one of those hunts where, again, like that deer hunt, you'll never forget. You know, I was I was lucky enough and blessed to have their help, and they put up with me through all my my mistakes and misses. But it it, it was an absolute blast. And then I Austin accident the hunt fool I talked to, and he convinced myself to write a story, and he published the January issue of uh, this year's magazine, and so that was pretty cool. That's cool, yeah. I saw you. I saw you posted it. <laughs> That's such a cool bull, too. Like, like it's just another character bull, kind of like your your deer, but <laughs> that's so cool. Exactly. That was kind of my thing. Is I was, you know, a lot of these people that come and hunt with us, they're like, I want a symmetrical bull. I want a clean bull with this, 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 and you know, my goal was just to have something that was just different that I liked and when we saw that bull with how heavy he was and those extra flyers, I'm like, absolutely, you know, this bull is, this bull's perfect. You know, anyone, especially myself, would have been happy to take him. So, so on those unit nine hunts that you're guiding for elk, what do you feel like is like a realistic ex- expectation for like that early rifle or early archery hunt on that, on that unit? Score one. Um, shoot, you know, Again, that also all depends on everything that happens up to the hunt as far as moisture and feed. Um, that year, we had Flagstaff set a record for the highest snowfall we had received since the great storm of the 60s that basically wiped out all of the antelope on Anderson Mesa. And the year prior to that, in 2018, was the biggest drought you know Arizona ever had. I remember me and Hunter checking cameras in 2018, um, calling the game warden up be like hey you know there's dead cows and calves and you know the drinker boxes there's it's a dust bowl up there you know it was like the great depression and that next year when we got all that snowfall and rain and everything we knew that these bulls were going to blow up and of course i drew the tag which was you know just made it that much more special for me that next year but a lot honestly on those archery hunts you know everyone has their their own personal expectations and it seems when you look at archery hunts versus rifle hunts, just because of, you know, the added stress level of using a bow and not being able to shoot 500 yards, you know, to a thousand yards, like some of these new guns are, the, the score that people are taking is just tends to be smaller, but it also depends on how easy or great the rut is. But yeah. when we have clients come in during the archery hunt, like obviously with a three and when we're guiding up there, we're hunting the biggest bulls in that unit that we possibly can. But there's absolutely no reason in Unit 9 with an archery tag that you shouldn't. You know, if you have a 350, 360 bull on an archery tag, I feel like that's an absolute trophy on any hunt. But once you realize how much antler it takes to make up 340, 350, 360, it's giant. 
Um, yeah, that's a pretty special goal. Anything over over 340, I feel like is it's pretty special. Yeah, and then of course you go to the rifle hunts and you you kind of you set your sights higher because you're just that much more lethal by having a guy who can shoot farther. You know, even the muzzleloader hunts, just having some of these guns that can at least shoot, you know, 150 yards is a blessing. Um, and what's cool about Unit 9 is it's Game and Fish and by the Elk Society to be a, a premier trophy elk unit. And that's what they've, you know, spent, I don't know how many years just specifically making it for elk. And it's cool because we have the Grand Canyon National Park that borders on one side, and then we have the reservation that borders the other side. And you can spend, you know, the entire season up there scouting, running cameras and everything, and then all of a sudden you have a bull that chases a hot cow stateside, and it's a freak, you know, the genetics. But you also have these bulls that grow up in the park or the reservation that never leave that stay there their entire life, and it's just like a a window teaser because you can go drive through the – you know, the national park and stare at these bulls or, you know, in the parking lots that are giant, but you know, they're never going to leave because they're comfortable. They're smart. They've spent their whole life there and they know exactly what that boundary line means to them. Yeah. So I had, I had a couple of years ago, I had the late archery unit nine. That's a freaking tough hunt. What do you think about, what do you think about the late hunts? Have you guys had much so, success on them? You know, I I try. Well, I, I spend more time on the late uh, muzzleloader hunt and the late rifle hunt here in Arizona at Unit 10. Oh, okay. um, I, I actually hunted it last year with a guy from Lake Havasu and his son, and we got tons of snow, found a lot of great bulls, but unfortunately we had at one point in time, I think almost three and a half feet of snow on the ground, and it made it so half of the, yeah, half of the roads were impassable. And it, it, we could see these bulls. We knew how to get to these bulls, but we were limited with what we could do just as far as, you know, how far we could hike in three feet of snow versus how far we could get with the truck. And, you know, it, it was a fun hunt. We saw a lot of great bulls. But usually by that late hunt, a lot of stuff gets broken. And, and nine has very few glassable places as far as, you know, where you go to 10 and there's cliffs and there's canyons and there's all this crazy stuff. Nine has that too, but it's mostly a cedar ocean or it's all pine trees and it makes it extremely difficult to be able to hunt these bulls. And that's why, you know, a lot of them live through the season. If you get a good drought, you know, like in any other units and those bulls become, you know, water dependent and you don't have very much snow, that archery hunt, those rifle hunts, you know, sitting water can be super beneficial. And I know tons of people who sit water, absolutely great bulls. But um, it's, it's just not my bread and butter as far as late hunts. I'd rather go to 10 and be able to see, you know, five miles in any direction and watch a bull who won't move more than 50 yards a morning because in nine of those cedar oceans, it's just... <laughs> no, you kind of cut, cut out there at the end. But, yeah, I, I think... Oh, gotcha. I think I, <laughs> I totally agree. I don't think I'll ever go back to nine on a late, on a late season archery or late season elk hunt. Just like you said, it's it's so thick. There's you can't really glass, and you, you're kind of banking on the weather. From what from what I saw, is if if you have water at all, it, I don't. Yeah, it's really hard to kill a bull. But if it's dry, 
that's that's kind of your only chance, I feel like. Yeah, and, and this last year after that hunt, you know, with all the snow and the, we were staying in the town of Tucson, and for I think for four days we didn't have heat or electricity in the motel, and so that just kind of goes to show you how bad that snow was up there. <laughs> Jeez. That's crazy. And, and I told myself, I'm like, you know, this next year I'll be back in 10. I'm done with nine for the late hunt. And my brother, who four years of deployment, which I thank him for, of course, drew the late rifle nine tag. And I'm like, you jerk, I have to go back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure with all your experience, I'm sure you guys will find something good. Oh, uh, yeah, it, it'll be fun either way. <laughs> Well, sweet, man. I appreciate you getting on and taking the time. Definitely killed and helped kill some awesome some awesome animals. You definitely know what you're doing. So. Oh, I, I, I appreciate it, man. I thank you for having me. And it's one of those where, like I said, it's actually kind of nice to know when you talk about hunting. So <laughs> the fact that you called kind of gives me a little break. And by the end of this you know, a whole phone call, I'm definitely going to be way more amped up for the season than I should be considering <laughs> summertime. <laughs> yeah. So what, um, what's kind of your outlook for the rest of this, like for this, this coming fall, what hunts do you have coming up? You said your brother has a late unit nine tag. Yeah. Um, you, you know, we, uh, yeah, one of the, like I said, you know, during the summertime, we start our scouting. You know, we have a great group of guys. I think we have 30 guys who work for A3, and uh, we're lucky enough with the hard work and dedication of our team that a lot of these uh, statewide auction tags and a lot of the raffle tags here in Arizona book with us. Um, and that's cool because here in Arizona, that's about the only time, aside from a depredation tag, that you get to hunt these big bulls in velvet. And we've killed some absolutely phenomenal bulls across the state with a lot of the other guys we have. Last year we killed one up here um, in northern Arizona, and it was kind of like that was one of the great bulls we had seen come out of that unit. And so we're looking forward to that, you know, coming up here in the next couple of months to start scouting for those early hunts. Um, and as soon as that's over, you know, hopefully I have a couple days to go back to chase this same coos deer I've been chasing with my bow and velvet for the last few years. Um, and that usually gets cut short by the antelope hunts. I spend most of my time in a 5B, which is really close to Flagstaff. It's one of the absolute top units for antelope here in Arizona. Um, and as soon as that's done, it's me and Hunter Weems will spend the next, seems like 30, 40 days of our life in Unit 9 living in our fifth wheels, you know, chasing bulls, breaking our trucks, <laughs> burning them up. And then once, once that's over, um, I kind of look forward to like the early Kayabab hunts and then it'll roll into some of the, you know, the, the later deer hunts, the later elk hunts. And then once that kind of wraps up, if I haven't punched my tag yet, um, you know, we'll get to chase deer in the over-the-counter hunt again in December, and there's a there's a couple bucks that I've been looking at as far as hardhorn that I'd be really excited to see if they live through the season, but only time will tell as far as scouting this year, you know. Right. Dang, well, it sounds Busy like hey, another, another full year, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it, I, I never realized, and it's kind of funny, a lot of the – guys who have been doing this for so much longer than I have are like, yeah, you know, thank God I have a wife who supports me or I'd be divorced. And 
after spending what seems, I think out of the last five months last year, I spent 13 days at home in my own bed. And uh, I totally understand how uh, hunting and guiding is probably one of the top leads to the divorce here in Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. So what's the best way for people to either get a hold of you or um, A3 if they kind of, if they drew a draw tag or have questions? Um, yeah, so e- even before the draw applications, uh, Chad, J. Matt, and Hunter Weems, you can contact them through uh, our website. Uh, over the last, I want to say, five years, Instagram has been a great influence as far as promoting and getting in contact with people who just have, you know, small questions. Um, we do a lot of guidance as far as where to apply and how we can get them set up for the rest of the season. Um, Hunter Weems is one of, is going to be one of the guys who will probably be able to get back to you the fastest as far as social media and contacting. Um, but all those numbers are definitely on, you know, our website. I think they're on Instagram as well. But you can, uh, you know, message me. You can message Hunter. You know, sometimes it takes us a couple of days to get back just because we might be in the woods or doing something else. But we're we're always happy, like I said, even talking to you, answering questions and just, you know, talking about whatever it is as far as hunting related, no matter, you know, what species or what time of the year, we're always willing to help people out because we know how long some of these guys wait for tags and we want them to be confident when they book that they know that they're not only going to get a hunt of a lifetime, but that they're, you know, tags entrusted to a group of guys who appreciates it and takes that passion to a whole other level. All right, guys, thanks for listening to another episode of the Dirty Giants podcast. We're going to be putting out podcasts every week. We're going to try to get them out by Monday um, for Muley Story Monday. So be sure to uh, keep watching and um, look for new podcasts. Anyways, thanks for listening. If you have any feedback or ideas or uh, know of people who have killed a lot of big bucks, feel free to reach out um, on our Instagram page. It's um, just Dirty Giants on there. So. Anyways, let me know, and thanks again for listening. We'll see you.